If you will take your scriptures, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4. We'll be reading the entire chapter. 1 Peter 4. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh, for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these... They think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watch in your prayers. And above all things... Have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And each one has received a gift. gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracle of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. On their part, He is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, and an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who obey the gospel of God? Now, If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we come this morning to your word. We come because of a great desire to know you in a way that will build us up in our faith and hope. We come to learn more about your son, the one you sent to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Your word tells us this son is the radiance of your glory and the exact representation of your being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at your right hand because you are the majesty in heaven. Father, Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your wisdom as it is given us in your word. In Christ's name, amen. This idea of suffering 
is one that is repulsive to all men. No one wants to suffer. Now, I cannot think of one single case of someone ever asking me to pray that they will suffer and have an absolutely horrible life. When we do suffer, we generally are quick to look for someone to blame. We are absolutely sure any suffering we undergo is the result of someone else's actions. The last place we want to look for an answer or a cause to our suffering is in ourselves. One of the most important commands we as believers are given is to examine ourselves. Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you're disqualified. Paul also teaches that anyone, anyone coming to the Lord's table should engage in an examination of their heart and mind. Where do you line up with God's word, with his sacrifice, with his his work? How strong are you in what you believe about Jesus Christ, about yourself, and God's plan of redemption? These are very important things to examine in the heart for the one who claims Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. The only way, the only way you can keep on top of that old nature and on its evil ways is to be constantly engaged in a process of personal self-examination. Paul meant what Paul meant in this when he, he says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Study your scripture. Examine yourself according to that scripture. Where are you in regard to your faith? Jesus spoke to the same concept in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you not be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Peter now ties this idea of examination to his teaching on submission and suffering. Christianity is a very hard lifestyle to follow. It requires much change of you. The slave is told to submit to his master even when the master is cruel. The wife is commanded to submit to her own husband even when he's an unbeliever. Believers are told to submit to the government over them even when it's totalitarian in nature. None of these things are easy to do. Mankind has an evil nature and even after God gives the believer a new heart and a new spirit and even places his Holy Spirit in them, they will struggle with the remnants of that old nature. In this, Jesus is not telling you to never form an opinion about the spiritual condition of another. That would be a contradiction to other passages that clearly tell us to be observant and discerning about the life and habits of others. What he is saying is that before you make judgments concerning the spiritual needs of another, be sure. Be sure you have first examined your own heart and life and dealt with the needs you have. To do otherwise is to be a hypocrite. 
And according to my Bible, hypocrites will have no place in heaven. Let's turn to Peter and study what he says about suffering and how it, is, it produces self-examination. First, we will see that it is God's will that suffering brings reflection. Second, we will learn that examination through suffering redirects your life's focus. Last, we shall find that examination prepares for judgment. The whole purpose behind this teaching on suffering has to ultimately come down to the teaching on mortification of sin. What is this mortification of sin? It's when sin is overcome in the flesh. Peter has said that to suffer will bring mortification, and in the, the end it will produce an examination of the heart and the removal of sin from the life. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his life in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Therefore, since you will persevere under suffering in following the example of Christ in his body, there's something else you must do. This is not a work. It's not a work to earn your salvation. It is a work, but it is a work to show your love, your appreciation for what Christ has done for you. What is it you are to do because Christ has suffered in his body? Arm yourselves also with the same mind. What mind? Paul told you in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Take up and defend yourselves with the same mind, the same courage, the same fortitude of Jesus Christ. You come to Jesus Christ as a believer. You are, as Paul says, in him. You're shown to be in him through your vows of commitment taken to him. Now those vows are represented in the membership vows of the church. It is your heart commitment to him as your Lord and Savior. Therefore, as Jesus Christ suffered in his flesh, you as a believer in him, one who has vowed and professed him as your Lord, should be prepared to suffer in your vows and the profession of your faith. How? By putting to death your old nature your old self, by mortification of sin, and then living for your life for him in obedience to his word. Why should you do this? It's to show your love and appreciation for all he's done for you. You become conformed to his likeness by living in his death and resurrection. Sin begins to be destroyed in your heart and removed from your life. Unless you put away sin from your life, and yes, that is your responsibility. Granted, you cannot do it unless the Holy Spirit is in your heart. But you must put away sin from your heart and seek to follow Christ's commands. You cannot know the love of God, and you cannot appreciate the work of Christ without the mortification of sin. There is no way to know the gospel without developing this attitude. You must ever remember, Christ died to destroy sin. He came and submitted to this terrible suffering to free you from your sin. The thing so important to having this attitude is to remember 
while Jesus submitted to the suffering of such work, he could not, nor would he, ever agree to submit to one single sin. And neither should you. This teaches that mortification of sin is grounded within the attitude of the believer. It is not derived from the act of repentance or in physical suffering of any kind. The mind of man is centered in the flesh. Therefore, your mind must be transformed. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts. Man's mind and heart are full of hatred. Their understanding is dark and they are removed from the presence of God. Please understand, man in no way is a sincere creature. He doesn't have a sincere bone in his body. All men are blind and evil, and the only hope for them is to be found in God's regenerating power at work in their hearts. There are two ways in which Peter shows this idea of dying to sin. He does it negatively when he says in verse 2, he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh of the lust of men. The believer is no longer a slave to the sinful lust of the flesh and to the evil and corrupt desires of the old nature. He has seen the glory of God. He has seen the wonderful offer of grace through Jesus Christ. He has come to place his trust in the work of Christ, who has lived the perfect life, died the atoning death, and won the resurrection victory. He comes to emulate Christ and to be a witness to a lost and dying world of this marvelous grace. It doesn't matter to him how much suffering he has to endure to carry this witness to others. Why is this? Because he has the same attitude that Jesus had, and that was to do the will of God. Are you hearing this? Do you understand? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's laid before you. Place your hope, your trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the whole context. We are suffering as Christ suffered, that we might also participate with Christ in eternity. This brings us to the second way Peter addresses this idea of mortification. He does it positively when he declares at the end of verse 2, but for the will of God. The believer is bound to conform himself to the will of his holy God. As a believer, you must take the will of God, the rule and practice of your life, not your own wants and desires. Once God does a work in your heart and regenerates you, giving you a new heart and spirit, there are going to be some marvelous changes in your life. This is not something that will happen by chance or by your own ability, but because of the working of the power of God in your heart. You will begin to be molded into the image of Jesus Christ. You will recognize yourself a sinner and see your need of a Savior and that there is only one possible Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You will be called to examine your heart and mind and to bring them in line with the will of God. How can you do this? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Ask yourself, have I done this? Have I really tried to transform my mind? Have I got into the scripture where it can be take hold of that process and help me transform my mind? To help me be a witness of Jesus Christ to those around me? Listen, witness isn't it hard. It's nothing, it's very simple. All you have to do for a witness is tell people what Jesus Christ means to you. To lay before them how he has affected your life. And tell them he can affect theirs the same way. The only way to come to God's will is through the examination of your heart and the removal of sin. It's through the same suffering Jesus endured that you will be enabled to do this examination. This is coming to the same attitude Jesus Christ had, and that was to follow God's will. The only way you're going to be able to accomplish this attitude change is by an accompanying change of behavior because they go together. Verses 3 and 4. For we have spent enough of our past time in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, reveries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. He makes it clear. He makes it clear that all who come to Jesus Christ come from a life of rebellion and sin. All men fall short of God's glory. For every imagination of the hearts of men is continually evil. The heart is weakened and deceitful beyond cure. And please note, it was not because they forced, they were forced into it, into this work, worldly lifestyle. He says it's because they chose it. Adam chose it. He chose it for all of us. They chose to follow their own wicked and evil desires. Peter says to those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ, you have spent enough time doing these terrible things, living as the pagans live. You cannot believe in Jesus Christ and continue in such sin. The Holy Spirit will not allow you any peace if you entertain this type of lifestyle. When a person is truly converted, these sins become very, very repulsive to him. It grieves his heart to find this type of sin in his life. John tells you in 1 John 2.15, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These are sins that are centered in the love of the world. It grieves the true believer's heart to, to remember the sins he once engaged in because it reminds him of his rebellion and the dishonor he has cast upon God through his evil actions. In this, in the unregenerate, the will is unsanctified, it's corrupt, the actions are always evil. The evil actions are the desire of your own will. They come from the choice of the unregenerate heart. 
through his own desires, the unbeliever makes his estate worse each day as he hardens his heart against the truth of God's word. To overcome such an attitude of rebellion requires the change of heart. Proverbs says the issues of life come from the heart and it is only a new heart that can produce the change of attitude. The change is what causes one to to recognize his actions as evil and his heart as useful. Then to understand it is in Jesus Christ alone that he can find the strength to change not only his attitude but also his actions. If you claim Christ as your Savior, you must change your lifestyle, rework your actions. If you claim Christ as your Savior, there's a lot of work to be done. But the Holy Spirit is there to help you with that work. You must seek the will of God in everything you do. What is the world's reaction to this change in the believer? Verse 4. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Why do they think it's strange? 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. They find them strange because they cannot understand the foundation upon which they're built. The unregenerate man has nothing, absolutely nothing, but his own good before him. He's not concerned about anything else. He wants to party. He wants to have a good time. He wants to please his flesh above everything else. When someone comes along who puts others ahead of themselves, he is totally at a loss to understand. This is the redirection that happens to everyone who comes to Jesus Christ. They go from putting themselves first to putting God first, followed by others and then themselves. Please hear these questions and make them a part of your examination. What is your priority? What comes first in your life? These are questions for the self-examination process. Once the unregenerate sees that there is something different about the believer, they become oh so defensive. They at first will try to convince the believer that he needs to relax and enjoy life. Quit worrying about morals and such. When that fails, they will turn on the believer and begin to heap abuse on them and to scorn them. They will speak evil of them and of their beliefs and their God. To change those whose attitude has been changed to the one whose attitude has been changed there will follow a change in his lifestyle. This is not to say he will not at times struggle with the temptations of this world. He will, but he will also put behind him the appetites of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. He will, but he will also put behind him how he is living his life. He will change. There will be a great change. He will focus on the one who has saved him and seek to have his life follow the example given in the Lord. His new ways will indeed be strange to those around him without new hearts. To hold the things the unbeliever cannot even begin to understand will be extremely perplexing to them. 
The believer's zeal for a standard that does not change with desire will be irksome to the unregenerate. They want to follow the desire all the time. They don't want to follow a standard of anybody else. How do you fight such? You change your actions such that you are not in a position to be tempted by such unregenerate people. The Christian will not be able to escape their scorn. They will heap their wrath upon him and cause him much suffering. It is the suffering, suffering of the likes endured by Christ, that will come the assurance that God has given a wonderful new attitude and a great and rewarding new focus. All of that will be made clear to others as you change how you live your life. Yes. Yes, it very well may cost you friends, party invites, and fleshly pleasures. But are those things not worth giving up for your God? This suffering that he speaks about has more than one purpose. Not only does it cause examination and redirect focus, but it also prepares for judgment. Verses 5 and 6. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. He speaks here first of those who have done the persecuting. They're going to have to, on the day of judgment, give an account of their tormenting of believers. The one to whom they will have to give this account is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul declares in Acts 10, 42, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. He's now in heaven, awaiting the time appointed by the Father to come and judge all men. He will judge those who have rebelled against him as well as those who have heard his voice and believed on his gospel message. He will judge those who have died in their sins and those who have died in him, as well as those who remain alive when he returns. The suffering these unregenerate people heap upon believers will be used in the final judgment to condemn them. Through their hard-hearted actions and their opposition to the truth of God's word, they heap up wrath against themselves. When they come to judgment, when they face the living God, they will have no excuse. Their actions will testify against them and will declare them guilty. So you can see, even the ones who produce the misery are perhaps by the suffering of the saints for judgment. They're preparing us so that we can stand before God in our judgment. In the light of the unjust suffering inflicted upon the believers at the hands of those who hate God, we can see that these believers are also prepared by this for God's judgment. Peter helps us to see this through his differing use of the verb in verse 6. The Greek verb is krino, and here it's translated might be judged. It literally means to act or to judge and to do what is right. This then is understood to be one-time event, and note their judgment is to be at the hands of men, not God. See what it says. He says, 
that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh. He also says, so that they may live and live according to God. He is referring to those believers who have gone, undergone this unjust suffering. He says, they were judged by men. They suffered at the hands of evil men. And you know what? According to those evil men, they were, they were, just, they were suffering justly. They were getting what they thought they deserved. But according to God, these believers suffered unjustly. And they were thus rewarded with life, and life that will never end, so this life continues on eternally. These believers were prepared for their judgment, prepared by the work of God in their hearts. They endured the same judgment Christ endured from the world, and thus were given a place in the judgment of the cross where their sins were accounted to Christ and his righteousness accounted to them. Do you understand that? Jesus Christ came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived that perfect life we could never live. He died the atoning death we had to have in order to be forgiven of our sins, and he won the resurrection victory that opened heaven's gate for us to come in. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer to your troubles. He's the answer to your sorrows. He's the answer to everything for you. If you place your hope and trust in him and in him alone. The believer sees that on the basis of his belief in Christ, as John puts it in John 5, 24, he shall come, he shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Here's the promise. Here's the promise that all who will come into Christ will endure the suffering that he endured, and they will have eternal life because of it. Peter shows this is why the gospel has been preached even to the dead, those who were before Christ's coming. You remember what Noah said, what they said about Noah? It is to show the difference between Christ's judgment on the unregenerate and on the believer. The unregenerate, he will be judged because of his sin. The believer will be judged because of his faith. Isn't that wonderful? My friends, the gospel brings suffering to all who hear its message and believe in the one who sends it. You cannot be a believer and not know this suffering. It may be caused by one who hates God and kills you. It could be from, one, from a loved one who refuses the message of grace and torments you because of your faith. It might be from a complete stranger with a sharp and cruel tongue. No matter from whom it comes, you should take heart. You should rejoice, for it declares that there is a difference between you and those who love the world. Suffering produces for all who love God a reminder that they need to, be, to ever be aware of their own past and the sins they came to live in. They, can, they need to let it bring them to a continual examination of their heart and life. Paul said, you were to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He added, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his own good purpose. Examination, brought on by suffering, causes you to prayerfully consider what God is doing in your life. It also brings you to a place of rejoicing in his good works 
in your life. It also redirects the focus of your life such that you are ever aware of your complete dependence on Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Suffering helps you to remember that it, is, it was God's work that delivered you from the sins, your sins and his work that holds you in the palm of his hand. God's in control. He's got this thing. He's the one you need to be placing your hope and trust in. It causes you to look away from yourself. It causes you to look toward others. It plants in your heart a desire to be to others what Jesus Christ has been to you. What's that? A friend. It also prepares you for judgment. It brings you to Jesus Christ at the foot of his cross where his blood washed away your sins and his righteousness fills your life. My friends, do not despair at the suffering of this Christian life. There is not so much as one small part of that suffering that is harmful to your spirit. It is the hand of God working in you to mold you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Raise your voice in praise to him who saves you. Why? Because he has been so gracious as to allow you to be one of his. You are also allowed to suffer with him so that you can be with him in eternity. Open your heart. Hear this gospel message. Jesus Christ came to save the souls of those who would turn their hearts to him. Turn from your cares of this world and fill your heart with faith, faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we come with thankful hearts for what you have given us. You sent Jesus to us and he said, I am the gate for the sheep. It is Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of your glory. Our delight, O oh Lord, is in your law. And on that law we come to meditate day and night. Go with us this week and guide us in our meditations that everything we think, say, and do will bring glory and honor to your name. We pray this. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.